0: very glad we have 224 here. It's a very nice crowd. I thought after the conference we might not have so many, but we have a few ministers who stayed over. And so it's a very nice crowd in our, I guess we could still call it our new hall here. I certainly want to thank all of you who've been praying for the sick people and for my wife. She's having perhaps the hardest, one of the hardest weeks of her life because she had her final chemotherapy injection day before yesterday, and it usually hits her on the third day and begins to keep on for several days really bad. So I appreciate your continued prayers for her, and I appreciate your prayers for me and your prayers for Mr. Wayne Pyle, who's been having a very hard time. And we just heard the other day about Mrs. June Olson, and hope you continue to pray for her. And for all the brethren who may be ill of various things. We had a group prayer. Most of you have heard this, but or perhaps, but at the end of one of the sessions, the morning session on the last day of the general ministerial conference, Mr. Ames asked me, just as I was leaving my chair to go up and give the opening part of that, that it might be good. I think he and Dr. O'Neill had talked about having the whole ministry pray together that God would heal And we did do that. And I'm very grateful, I think, that somehow God inspired the people through that prayer. And I hope many of you will think about that. The entire ministry and wives, there may have been a very few people, of course, who had to stay behind, who were either sick or we couldn't afford to bring every single elder on earth here. But the vast majority were there. And they will be praying, and I hope you will, that God will begin to intervene and heal his people and certainly we have had a wonderful family atmosphere about that as a whole, uh, people loving one another, praying for one another. I know uh Mr. either Mr. Gill or Mr. League mentioned that my wife and I started off the final dance there at the end of the ministerial banquet and we we did in a sense that i was barely able to get up out of my chair and she was barely able to get up and we were holding each other up <laughs> so we weren't dancing very much we were sort of vibrating there <laughs> and uh, but the brethren circled around And I mean, it seemed like everyone got closer, and we must have had 15 to 20 different people taking pictures of us. And I began to think, well, boy, they're treating us like Hollywood stars out here. And it did not go to my head. I think they're showing love for us as a team and for my wife that they've been praying for seeing that she was able to stand up and even get on the dance floor so that was encouraging and believe me we don't feel like hollywood stars <laughs> but it showed a, a love and a kindness and that was very encouraging and I certainly appreciate uh, that very much we don't normally have that i'm not very uh, photogenic and i've never Never won any beauty contests, as I'm sure you know, (laughs) but my wife used to be very photogenic, extremely beautiful, and I still have a picture of her on my mantle in the office about the time we were married, and you see that picture, she really looks just like a Hollywood star, uh, which she did at that time, but anyway, we appreciate your prayers for both of us and for the wonderful uh, family spirit that we have had. I want to welcome any guests that may be here, and uh, we certainly hope you will be welcome and stay for the snacks that we had after, have afterward in there. And then, uh, that's a good way to visit with one another after church. And then I do want to thank Mr. Gill for coming so many thousands of miles to give the sermonette. <laughs> he didn't come for that purpose, but he stayed over, so it was a very helpful, fine sermonette. And I did appreciate the very fine song from Mrs. Lyons. I may have heard you sing before, Lori. I think I have. But if I did, this was the best one. And you did very, very well. Actually, I think you sing better than I do. And uh, (laughs) I hope you know that's a joke. I can't sing at all. I think I've told you the story about one of those fellow students in college years ago. Actually, it was Raymond McNair. He and I were best friends, and we were painting the walls in the lower gardens of Ambassador College, and I was singing for my own amusement, I guess. It was just Raymond and me around. And so after a while, Raymond uh, turned to me, and he said, Rod, he said, I used to wish I could sing. And he said, now I wish you could sing, (laughs) which was very appropriate. (laughs) I usually sing just to the shower. But anyway, the work is growing. We're very grateful for that. We did have a very fine ministerial conference and we thank God for it. So many of the men gave very, very fine presentations and I think it really encouraged the ministers from around the world and there was an excellent spirit of unity and love and I'm very thank, thank God for that. And as brethren, you know that we have a lot of new people beginning to come into the church, many brand new people this year, some through the campaigns we're having, some from television directly, some from the internet responses and so on. But we certainly are beginning to grow more than ever, and we thank God for it. Many of our separated brethren are going to hear about the unity and the growth that we've been having and the work that we're doing and will come with us in years to come. Perhaps persecution will drive us together, and I hope that many will do that. We don't want to go and recruit them or try to grab them away, but they'll find out, and many are already beginning to do that, but I'm sure many will more through our prayers. And we, of course, will be very grateful for new people to come. How will we receive new people, brand new people from the world who never knew the truth, or people from other fellowship or wherever they come, How will we receive them here in our church, here locally and in the churches around the world, the living churches who may hear this later? What is our church atmosphere? Are we welcoming to new people? Are we loving to new people? I hope we try to think about that and act on that. You know, sometimes if new people come in, occasionally a young man will have long hair. Well, that's not perfect, but long hair is no worse than, well, all kinds of things you could mention, perhaps even overeating or, you know, doing weird things and many other kinds of things, certainly if he doesn't even know about it or think about it, and we should give him weeks or maybe even months to get used to the idea. Some people come in the church and they're not properly dressed. Well, of course, the book of James talks about that. Are You going to flatter the man that comes in well, well-dressed and rich, Or say to the poor man who's not well-dressed, do you sit over here in a corner on a little stool? Don't do that. Don't judge people right away. Love them, welcome them, and if they're a bad guy, Uh, Mr. Lee, as you know, is also a bad guy, and and he will figure them out. (laughs) I'm kidding about him being a bad guy, but he's dealt with a lot of bad guys, and he and the whole staff, they, they will take care of that and counsel them and try to help them, but we don't want to get on their case about little things. Some young woman comes in and her skirt's a little short. Well, ghastly. You can turn a flip the button and on TV you'll see hundreds of young women like that. So no one ought to fall away if young people come in or new people and they're not perfect the day they walk in the, in the, in the church. Love them, help them, pray for them, encourage them, and be welcoming to them in every way. Because brethren, God is building a family today in God's church true god's church god is building a family god is a family he's the father christ is the son and christ is called the firstborn of many brethren god is our father and that is a family term he is building a family and so we want to really think about ourselves as a family and try to create a family atmosphere And we have that to a degree. It's not that we don't have it at all. As I said, I was very grateful for the love and the warmth shown to my wife and me at the conference and many of the things like that that were very obvious there. But we certainly can all do better, and I hope you'll think about that, that we're building a family. We need to remember that God's family... Our spiritual family, God's church family, supersedes even our human family. All of us have human families that we love. And I always loved my father and mother and my grandmother who lived way up until age 90 and one of my favorite peoples on the earth. My other three grandparents died when I was very young. Only one lived long enough that I really got to know her real well, which I did. I was her only grandson and she enjoyed spoiling me, which was wonderful, of course, for me. <laughs> and when I was a rebellious teenager and go stomping away from the house on occasion and I would just walk away at a grandmother's house, which is Three blocks away well, i 'd go in, and grandmother would give me cookies and and uh, and, and uh, cocoa or cookies and uh, what am I gonna say hot chocolate or whatever, and tea and sympathy, as they say once in a while, I would hear the phone ring, and mother grandmother would be around the corner she didn't know I was listening in, and it was my mother and uh, and, and grandmother would say yes yes he 's here he 's okay, <laughs> so, so my mother wasn 't worried about me, I was over grandma 's but I had a family, and my uncle Paul and Aunt Ethel were nearby, and another aunt, and and uh, who never came into the church, an uncle, so we had a large family, and on Christmas or Thanksgiving and the worldly holidays, we'd sometimes have 10 or 12 people all together as a family on family occasions, and so that was very, very nice, and a kind of a warm, loving feeling, which we ought to cultivate in the church. But the church family, as I say in the end, has to supersede and and not replace. You still love your human family, but the church family may end up being your longer-term family, which a lot of you know, your human family sometimes totally or partially rejects you when you come in the church. And your human family may die. All of my human family is now dead, except my little sister, who ran off with a strange man one day and never came back. And her name is Mrs. Richard Ames now, (coughs) but (laughs) so she's okay. (laughs) But anyway, she's the only one. My other sister died, and my father and mother died, and my grandparents, and so on. Back in Luke chapter 14, Luke chapter 14, and beginning in verse 25, it shows here, Luke 14, verse 25, "...great multitudes went with Christ." He often had several hundred, or as we know, even sometimes five to fifteen thousand people around him. That one time he fed these people, the biggest group, it was, shows it was five thousand men beside women and children. And they often had a lot of children and they didn't have as many facilities and maybe as many babysitters as those days. So there could have been fifteen to twenty five or thirty thousand people if they brought all their kids, you know, sitting there. That was a big crowd. 5,000 men plus 5,000 women probably and all the kids, a lot of folks. And he said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother. And we've explained this to you. It isn't just our opinion. Look it up in the lexicons and in the commentaries and the Greek experts all agree That is a comparative term in the Greek language. It does not mean hate. It means to love less by comparison. So you love your human father and your human mother and your wife, your husband, your son, your daughter, your brother, your sister, and your own life. Your own life also less than you love the Almighty God who gave them to you and gives you life And more than your own life itself. So you've got to love God more and love Christ more because Christ is God. So whoever loves these humans more and does not love me more, he cannot be my disciple. You cannot be a true Christian if you love your human family more than you love God and Christ, the creator. Remember the first commandment. The world doesn't get it. You know, you often talk about people, well, do you believe in God, or do you have any faith, or do you go to church? Oh, yeah, I believe in God, and and I try to obey the golden rule and love my neighbors myself. They'll say something like that. Well, that's fine, except they don't know how to love their neighbor, in most cases, because they haven't studied the Bible. And they may turn on their neighbor and kill him if he does something bad, as they often do in this world, those kind of people... And they forget the first commandment, the great commandment. The first and great commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your mind, with all your soul. That's number one. Then secondly, you love other human beings. Because anything good you see in your human father or mother or brother or sister or anything good you see in your wife, your husband— your brothers, sisters, your family is only there because God put it there and He comes first. You love Him more. So you've got to love Him more and love Christ more than your own family or your own life. And whoever does not bear His cross now, today, we don't know fully what that means. That's just a religious term. But there, as some of the commentaries explained, there were dozens of people crucified, sometimes hundreds if there was a rebellion one year in Judah. And they saw men hanging along the, the way, hung on crosses, their bellies swelling out and screaming with pain. They were often hung there for four to six days before they died. It was a horrible way to die. They knew what Jesus meant. You've got to be willing to go through trials and tests and even suffering to be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower does not count the cost first and whether you have enough to finish it. You've got to decide if you have enough expertise. Do you have a big bank or insurance company to to fund this program and have the money? And do you have everything else lined up so it's going to work. Are you going to start some big building and you can't finish it. And then you go bankrupt and your company goes bankrupt and everything else goes wrong. You better think things through before you give your life to God. You'd better decide you're going to really give your life to God. Don't play with God. Don't play games with God. Really mean it. Give your life to God and know it's his life and not your life from then on. So likewise, whoever of you, verse 33, does not forsake all that he has, he cannot be my disciple. So you've got to love God first with all your heart. And your human family is wonderful. And my human family was wonderful. And I had a good father and a good mother. And I'm very grateful for that. But God comes first. When I came in the church, why, my mother especially got very upset because I left and left the Methodist church and went out. You're following that Armstrong, she said. And she didn't like that. And I've told you that. And I know she especially got upset when my little sister Catherine was the second one and came out. And Armstrong even got my little daughter. (laughs) And, of course, she didn't understand. She later relented. Mr. and Mrs. Ames invited her down to Big Sandy when they later were teaching there. And then she came down and Mrs. Hammer and Mrs. Naff and some of the older women had some teas and they would have my mother there. And she became very friendly. She saw that we weren't all standing on tree stumps talking about the end of the world. And the women were very friendly and she then became friendly to the church. But at first she didn't like it at all and sort of rejected us. Many others have gone through that, as some of your family may have rejected you or kicked you out or refused to speak to you. I've talked to hundreds of people in the early years of the church when that happened. So you've got to be willing to go through that and know that God comes first. You worship God. You don't worship man. You don't put your human family ahead of God, and you're willing to give up the family... You're willing to give up your very life to serve the one who gave you that life in the first place. Then in God's church, that becomes your family. God is your father. Christ is your older brother. And all the brethren in the church are your brothers and sisters in Christ. And you begin to have that atmosphere. Notice back in Matthew chapter 10 now, if you would turn there with me. In Matthew chapter 10, and let's follow this. Matthew 10, verse 34. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's foes will be those of his own household. So that is often the case. Your, Your worst persecutors at first, they don't understand. It's like you've rejected what they taught you You've rejected the family religion. You know, when you leave and join the church of God, they don't understand. They just take it personally. They become your foes. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross, again, that attitude of going through suffering... And follow after me is not worthy of me. Now, brethren, notice verse 39 very carefully. He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. You know, many of us in the church try to continue to find our life. I've certainly done that from time to time. And then I realize it's been going on to some extent for a while. And I repent of it again. We have to grow in grace and in knowledge It's not wrong to have fun. It's not wrong to enjoy a good, you know, musical concert or a beautiful trip or hike out in beautiful mountains or do this or that. But if you constantly tend to take trips to have fun or go to movies, which are often wrong movies, or just want to do what you want to do the way you want to do it, you're finding your life. Whereas if you honestly, sincerely think, how can I give my life to my God my life is not my life, I'm giving my life to God, it is His life, then in the end, you will find your real life, and God will bless you, guide you, help you, encourage you, and give you everlasting life in His kingdom. You see, the first attitude is self-will. You want what you want, and you go after it. The second attitude is you have been conquered by God And you are giving your life to God and sincerely trying to do what you know He would like for you to do, even though you will have temporary extra hours of work or prayer or doing without certain things. I've told you about the baptizing tours in the early days. I went on three in a row. 1951, all summer, 10 and a half weeks, 17,500 miles around the United States with Raymond McNair. 1952, 19,000 miles all over the United States to clear up into Canada with Burke McNair, his younger brother. And then the next year with Dr. Herman Hay across much of the South. And so I had three years, then later I had several shorter tours, five or six others through the years. But those two long tours, 51 and 2 especially, here was 10 to 11 weeks, and here I was, 21, 22 years old. Was I having lots of fun? My friends back in Joplin would probably think I was nuts. I didn't see a single movie. I didn't date a single girl. I didn't do anything they would regard as fun. I was driving myself, losing meals, losing sleep, pushing myself to visit these old people. They were old people compared to me, most of them. I was 21 or 22. Most of them were 45 to 85. The first man I ever baptized, I think, was A.M. Coffin. And I, of course, still had enough youthful stupidity and enjoyed the, the joke in a sense. He was old enough to be my grandfather. I thought he's 84 years old. His name is Coffin, and he's prepared for the coffin. You know, <laughs> a kid of would think. I didn't think bad. I just had that little humorous thought. But he was a wonderful man, and I baptized him. And he came to, to uh, Big Sandy several years after that, and very nice man. But I didn't have any human fun. But I look back on those days, and I have never had one minute's regret. Those people would sometimes break down and cry when we would leave. They knew they might never, ever see someone from Ambassador College again to help them. And they knew they were giving their life to God. At that time, brethren, you might say, what's going on? Well, at that time, we had in the Church of God, under Mr. Armstrong... We called at that time the Radio Church of God. We had three churches, Portland, Eugene, and Pasadena. That's it. Once you got east of the West Coast, no churches. They had no one to meet with. And we still didn't have churches in many of those places for anywhere from two to ten years later. So some of them did die before we ever had a church close enough for them to to meet with regularly. So they had to walk with God on their own. But that was a very, very fulfilling time, those two summers. And God had blessed me then and blessed me since and will continue if I try to give my life to Him. Have I done that ever since? No. I've made mistakes. I've had periods when on certain weeks or months, I've just not not done evil. I haven't been out killing or committing adultery. But, you know, you just let down and kind of live a normal life and kind of go through the motions. And you're not thinking all the time that I'm Christ's servant, And you're not as zealous as you could be or ought to be. But when you do those things and you give and give and give, God gives you back because you've given to God. I'm getting off on something else. That's very important. though. <laughs> but we want to think about the spiritual family. Those people became a spiritual family. Now, on the tour with Raymond and then later Burke McNair, we ran into part of our family a couple times on that tour. And as we went through Big Sandy, Texas, we came through the home, the area where the Roy Hammers were. We had met them the previous autumn up in Sigler Springs up in Bellknap Springs, up up in Oregon, at the Feast of Tabernacles, and so we stopped by to see them. And Mrs. Hammer had, I think, five or six boys of her own. She had a big family, eight or nine kids. So she also came us. We just came by to say hello. So she kind of grabbed us like a grandma, and she said, "Oh, you boys are tired. You stay here and eat tonight." And they wanted us to stay there. We'd already checked into a motel. But we we did eat. We had the best meal we'd had in several days. And she said, you boys, I don't think you get to wash your clothes very well, do you? Well, you know, we look kind of sheepish. Of course we did. We washed them a little bit and with some regular soap in the sink and hang them up. She said, let me put your clothes, and underclothes in the, in the wash and I'll clean them. And then you come by in the morning and, and you'll have them all clean. We said, oh, no, it's okay. No, she, you need that. She said, I know boys. She said, you need that. And she, we did, of course. So she took care of us. Immediately she treated us like family. And she was our mama in that way. And along the way, we met one or two other church families who were like that and never forgotten that. So God does give us a family in the church more and more than we would ever have. In some sense, they're scattered all over the world. Our church family. Turn with me to Mark chapter 3 now. Mark chapter 3. And beginning, uh, here in Mark 3 verse 31, then his brothers, Jesus' brothers on this occasion and his mother came standing outside and they sent to him calling him. By the way, this is kind of a side issue, but I want to bring this in so you can understand. Remember the Catholics and some of the Protestants, not most of them, but they're beginning to go that way as the Catholic Church gains power. They, they sort of worship. The Virgin Mary, of course, the Catholic Church calls her the mother of God. If she was really the mother of God, think about it as you read this passage in the inspired Bible. His mother was outside, and they said, Look, your mother and your brothers are outside the crowd here seeking you. And he answered, Who is my mother? Oh, that doesn't sound like he worshiped the Virgin Mary. Who is my mother or who are my brothers? And he looked around at the circle. of were his disciples and these uh, regular brethren sitting around hearing him in this crowd and said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. And brethren, again, that's what the Son of God said. Think about that passage often. We, each one of us, if we have given our lives to God, we are Jesus' brother, we are his sister, we are his mother, we are his relatives, we are family. Because God is building a family and watching over us and working with us and wanting to integrate us into the spiritual family that he and the Father are building to live together to dwell together, to serve together, perhaps to go out and repopulate various parts of the entire universe down through time for all eternity. And so we need to learn to know one another the best we can, love each other, help each other, support each other, encourage each other, entertain each other, have each other over to meals, share with one another, lend to one another when it's necessary help a poor brother when he's in trouble all those things as though we were really physical brothers and sisters that's what god wants us to do to develop that family spirit and jesus said here are my mother and brothers and sisters right here those he said who uh do, whoever does the will of god is my mother and brother and sister If we do the will of God, if we study this book, as Mr. Gill was intimating in his sermonette, I talked to them at the conference, as I often have talked to you, about the fact Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 57, whoever feeds on me, you need to feed on this book. You need to feed on Christ. You need to masticate the word of God in a sense. Chew on it. Digest it. Make it a part of you where it flows right out from you like rivers of living water because you've been drinking in of it and feeding upon it. He wants all of you to do that, to think like God, to have God's mind flowing through your mind. And then you will be far more of a brother and sister to everyone else around you if you do that, too, of course. So that's very important. I've told... Over the years, many times, when my first wife was alive, and now my wife, Cheryl, has heard this, no one has ever minded it, my wife or anyone else, I don't know if my carnal relatives ever heard it, but that's their problem, but I have said it and I mean it, the last nice meal my first wife, Margie, ever cooked for anyone, for a guest, was for Mr. Harold Jackson, And he was a dear friend of mine. I was helping to see if he were baptized and accepted his baptism. I did baptize his wife and knew him from the beginning when he first came into the little San Diego church back in September 1952 that I had raised up. Mr. Harold Jackson, some of you older brethren remember him. Many of you newer ones don't. But just for the sake of the new brethren, how many of you older brethren ever knew or met Mr. Harold Jackson? The others look around, Mrs. Uh, Murray down here, and and my son Jim and others, several have met Mr. League and others. He was a very, very fine, very dedicated man, and very balanced and very deep spiritually. And so I have often told this story when Mr. Jackson was still alive, and I'll tell it now. If I had to be exiled, you know how they talk about being stranded on a desert island. Who would you want to be uh, stranded with? And, of course, a lot of young men think about some beautiful Hollywood star or something like that. But if I had to be stranded on the desert island, I would rather have been stranded on the desert island with Mr. Harold Jackson than with almost anyone except my sister Catherine at that time and my physical family because she was the only one in the church. I would rather be stranded with him because we would have so much more in common. We could talk about why we're here and God is up in heaven and he'll take care of us and the whole purpose of life and everything than I would some other carnal member of my family. And I mean it. And I would love to have been, not love to, but if I had to be stranded on a desert island, I would have been much more at home with Mr. Jackson. And so we need to think about it. Our spiritual family has far greater closeness far greater intimacy than we can have even with their physical family especially if the physical family is not even in God's church that doesn't mean we turn their back on them we still love them we help them but we can't share the whole purpose of our lives with them in the same way and we do need to think more about the fact that we are a spiritual family a church family and they are our real brothers turn back to Romans the chapter chapter 2 here Romans chapter 2 the apostle Paul wrote in verse 28 for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly nor is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh but he is a Jew now most of you know other scriptures and I don't have time to give a sermonette on this but we're all told in the Bible that we're to become spiritual Jews or spiritual Israelites through God's spirit that's what God tells us he is a Jew For spiritually, who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, and not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. So all of us become a spiritual Jew, a spiritual Israelite, no matter whether we're black or white, or male or female, or old or young, or whatever we are. We've become a Jew because Christ is living within us, and that makes us spiritual Israelites, no matter what our background may be. And then you find in Galatians chapter 3, turn now to Galatians. It's Romans 2 and Galatians 3, kind of easy to remember these passages just turn out that way. And as many here, it says in Galatians 3 verse 27 verse 27 for as many of you as were baptized into christ you see if you've given your life to god through jesus christ and you really meant it you have put on christ christ is going to live his life in you there is neither jew nor greek or he could say gentile or black or asian you know or anything else any other race or background "...nor slave, nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus." We're all one. That does not mean there are not any physical differences that can be respected in the way of marriage or in the way of dressing or undressing or things like that. Sometimes men all have the same the shower, you know, if they're sports. We don't have women's and men's showers together. We're still male and female in the physical sense." But in our fellowship, our spiritual fellowship, our love, our common purpose, the real mental, emotional closeness, we're all one in Christ. And if you're Christ's, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise? So that spiritual closeness in virtually every relationship overrides the physical and should in our attitude of outflowing concern and love for one another. And that makes us all one in Christ and we ought to have spiritual fellowship in Christ as with another member of our family and in many cases far more than many members of our family I've had members of my family one aunt that wrote me the most hateful letter I've ever had in my life after I came into the church and she said you've just killed your mother who's all upset and she was very close to my mother Well, I could never have the same deep, warm, loving fellowship with her as I do with hundreds of you people because her attitude was that way. She wasn't a bad woman. She was just not converted. You know, God wasn't working with him yet. I never bore her any evil. She's dead now. But at any rate, I had far greater fellowship with my spiritual family than with her. And I had far greater spiritual fellowship with Mr. and Mrs. Harold Jackson and their daughter, Teresa, in the church of God than I did with my physical family, most of them, back at that time when Mr. Jackson was still alive. His daughter may still be alive. I ought to check up on her. He and his wife are both dead. Now let's go to to uh, Ephesians chapter 2, if you would. Ephesians now, chapter 2, and notice what God tells us here. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 18 The Apostle Paul is writing about the difference between the Jews and the Gentiles. And he said, through Christ, through him, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Now, therefore, you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens. We're all of the same kingdom of God. Our citizenship is in heaven. We are not primarily Americans or Australians or Britons or Canadians. We will be loyal to our land and pay taxes and honor the flag. And, and if we're in Britain, say, I love to sing God Save the Queen. It's an honor to their nation. That's fine. But we worship God. And if there has to be a conflict, we obey God rather than man. That's our ultimate citizenship is with God in heaven. We're fellow citizens with the saints of God's government, the kingdom of God, and members of the household. Oh, what's a household? That's a family. We're members of the household or family of God. We are begotten members of a family that God is building. Having been built on the foundation... What's the foundation just of, of Christ and then the apostle Paul's New Testament teaching supposedly even doing away with what Christ said? No, the foundation is the apostles, plural, the prophets, the Old Testament prophets, plural, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a habitation of God in the Spirit. We're a habitation. God is going to walk and live and move within us. He lives His life in us, as my favorite verse says. He says, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And if He lives in you and He lives in me, then we are closely joined together, you see, in this deep, profound spiritual fellowship by Christ living within us. And we are members of the same family, the spiritual family. And we can have far more deep, profound talks with one another about the whole purpose of life and everything that means the most to us with our brothers and sisters in Christ than we can with our outside family, even though we always continue to love them and should do. We honor our father and mother and should help them as long as they're alive. And I certainly tried to do that and help them and loan them money if I needed to, which I did on a couple of occasions when I was, when they were still alive and all that kind of thing. But you love your your them, but you also have a deeper relationship in the things that are most important with your spiritual family. And God wants you to do that. So he shows that your greatest relationship is with you're being built together for on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And that is the church of God, the household of God. That is the family of God. That is our ultimate family. So, brethren, we are to grow toward being the family that God is producing and God is building for all eternity. And we're going to share all eternity with one another, that is, with all of us who remain faithful. Remember, not he who starts out and then gets his feelings hurt at the first opportunity and falls away. Not he who starts out and then some trouble comes along or persecution. Oh, I can't take that and he falls out. You know, all the examples and parables in the Bible. Matthew 24, 13 Matthew 24, verse 13. He who endures to the end will be saved. Not he who starts out and quits. But if we continue, we are going to be closer and closer together. We will go through trials and tests and ups and downs. And you will pray for me and my family. I will pray for you and your family. And other brethren will pray for you. And you will share with one another many, many things. Now, we're big enough here in our local church... About 220 people have normally here, and so we can't know everyone intimately. But among those you know intimately, you can have that relationship more and more and more. And as we go through the trials and tests, we have that more profound relationship. We see that we've been tested. We've gone through this trial and that trial together and we can have each other's back. In a sense, we can trust this guy. We, we fought through this battle with him. And he's been faithful, faithful to God and faithful to us. And we have that deep, profound realization. There's some of you that I've seen do that. And you've hung in there no matter what. And God has blessed you and God will continue to bless you because of that attitude that you've had. I think of two beautiful ladies here. Mrs. Dorothy McNair and Mrs. Genio Gwyn, And both their husbands died in God's service. And they have been very faithful no matter what ever since. They're helping, giving, serving. I've never seen any of them cry or moan or get upset at the church. They've just carried right on. And they're a wonderful example. Excuse me, if I leave all the widows out, I don't know all the widows here. I'm I'm just talking about some of them because I loved both of those men and knew them and their wives very much. I've been in the Meniere's home, and Carl and Dorothy came down and lived my own home on two or three occasions and set up the whole church administration right on our kitchen table there and got the work going and then got it re-going again after the split we had in '98. And of course Mrs. Aguin hung right in there and her husband was pastoring as I kind of kidding when they called it the entire Confederacy, most of the, most of the South, all over, typing articles and writing correspondence course lessons hour after hour and she was doing the driving. And I've stayed in their home, I think, three or four times and she was always a gracious hostess and now she's right in our office place there working for Dr. Winnale, so I don't go up and try to flatter her very much. I don't want to do that, and she doesn't want that, but I admire her and admire Mrs. McNair, and when I talk to them, I see a spiritual depth. They've been through the wars, and I knew their husband and loved them, and I love them, and I love what they're doing, and hopefully they can put up with my any of my mistakes and they apparently still respect me and we can be part of a family we've been through trials and tests together and i've been through trials and tests with dr Winnale and mr hay and mr ames i mean and some of you other men in the ministry and that builds a depth of trust and relationship over a period of time we need to have that with one another and appreciate what god is doing he wants us to have these people we know that we trust that we've seen the attitude through ups and downs and trials and tests. And we hopefully will be together for all eternity. And we won't see the little, as Mr. Armstrong used to call it, peculiarities. When we're spirit, we won't have those peculiarities. We'll be spirit. And we won't necessarily be in the same room for all eternity You might be out on Alpha Centauri and I'll be over in Pluto or wherever. We'll have the whole universe we'll be repopulating. But we'll know each other, love each other, trust each other profoundly. Because back in this physical life, we'll have learned to love each other, work together, share together, give to each other, forgive each other, which you have to do if you have friends. If you're going to really have friends, you not only better give, you better forgive That's the only way to build a good marriage, by the way. You young people, you go into thinking everybody's perfect. No, no one's perfect. There's never been a perfect husband, never been a perfect wife except Christ. And even his wife has not been perfect. (laughs) God is still working with us, of course. We're the wife. So no one's perfect, but God is working with us over a period of time to prepare us to have that kind of relationship with him and with one another for all eternity now, uh, I want to go at this point to Romans chapter 12, if you would. Romans chapter 12, and notice what God tells us here in His Word. <clears throat> in Romans 12, verse 1, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable or intelligent, other translations have a different way, service, your reasonable or your rational or your intelligent service. It's not intelligent to offer the blood of cows and and lambs anymore. The intelligent service is to give your life to God as a living sacrifice. That's what God wants us to do today. Do not be conformed to this world. So you present your bodies a living sacrifice. And do not be conformed to this world, this society. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You're to have a whole different attitude toward everything. That you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say to you through the grace given to me. You see the word grace can mean gift. It may, may mean uh, actually gifts of ability, strengths, mercies, helps. Through the grace, the offices and jobs got given him to everyone among you. Not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Don't think oh I'm a big shot all of a sudden. I'm a star. I'm this or that. No you're not. As David said... I know that I'm a worm. I am a worm, O God. And, And that's what we all are. But none of us are anything of ourselves. Don't think of yourself more highly, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ. God is making us one. And individually members, members of one another. In other words, we're a family, a family unit. We work together having been gifts according to the grace that is given to us, to the gifts and the strengths that have been given, the abilities. Let us use them if prophecy And prophecy often meant in the New Testament, not just foretelling the future, but inspired preaching. If prophecy, let us prophesy according to proportion of our faith. You see, brethren, if a minister is not sure of himself and he kind of waffles around, he cannot have the same sense of power and passion and absolute conviction as if he believes what he's saying right down to his toenails. And he could bring that conviction more to the brethren if the brethren sense he believes it with all of his being. You preach according to a portion of your faith. And that's an important attribute. Or ministry. Let us use it in our ministering where you help and serve others. Or he who teaches on teaching. Some have a good gift of explaining or teaching. Or he who exhorts on exhortation. Exhort means you better ought to. And sometimes you do need to exhort one another, your own children or others, and in love to help them, you've got to quit that drinking. Quit drinking too much, you could tell your friend. And help each other wake up before it's too late, or whatever the problem is. But if you do it in love, not picking at people, but helping them before it's too late. He who gives with liberality. If you have the capacity to give, give. Not just tithes and offerings. Give liberally if you can. But many of you are giving of yourself by helping others, giving them food, giving them time, giving them encouragement, all kinds of things. You're a giver. He who gives, give liberally. Don't be jealous or stingy about it. He who leads with diligence. A leader needs to do it with all of his heart. And he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Don't forgive others grudgingly say I'm the other person says I'm really sorry well you can just say I I I accept that that's fine and you really mean it and you try to put that thing behind you as best you can you may know in the back of your mind as he has stabbed you in the back or robbed you he might possibly do it again but you try not to dwell on that you forgive him you welcome him you help him you hope wholeheartedly he never does it again And you don't hold it against him in that way. If he keeps on doing it again, then you may need to bring it to the ministry or deal with him. But in the meantime, forgive him wholeheartedly. Doesn't mean you need to be a fool, but forgive him with all your heart. Let love be without hypocrisy. Don't pretend to love someone that you really don't. Abhor what is evil. Hate evil. You don't hate the evil person. You hate the evil itself. Cling to what is good. Be so grateful that you learn the truth in the church of God. And that you've got basically good people here that you can fellowship with and be part of a family each Sabbath. Be kindly affectionate to one another. Have that affection. And many of you are. I see that. you You, you really shake each other's hand vigorously or hug each other in a right way. And sometimes really squeeze each other and encourage each other and give your heart and your attitude toward each other very generously build on that that does mean all the young men ought to give uh the, the the prettiest girls a big bear hug that could be bad and if you young men do that i'll come around and i have my cane i'll be watching out for you <laughs> i'm kidding but obviously we don't mean romantic love until you're married but you love each other in the right way and many I saw a couple women just really hugging each other big time as I came in here I don't remember who it was but I'm sure they meant great affection for another sister in the church be kindly affection toward one another with brotherly love and honor giving preference to one another and that's fine you're in the church this other person stands for what you stand for not lagging in diligence It's so easy to let down and do things half-heartedly. God says, whatever you do, do with your might. Don't do it half-heartedly. Fervent in spirit. You're zealous spiritually. Serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope. Patient in tribulation. Yes, we will go through trials and tests. And some of us have gone through trials and tests together. And that builds a stronger relationship when we've done that. We've been through the wars together And that's an important thing. We've been put down. We've held in there anyway. We've been attacked by the world. Perhaps we've been persecuted or thrown in jail. I'm sure after the Apostle Paul and Silas or Timothy had been put in jail and beaten up. And they stayed with each other, helped each other. It built a deep, profound closeness they did not have before to the same extent. Continuing steadfastly in prayer, constantly praying distributing to the needs of the saints and brethren not just those of you who are wealthy but any of us who are just average try to think and look around and ask and if you need to talk to mr league talk to mr rod mcnair talk to some of our other elders here in the church there are families from time to time that are actually lacking food there are families from time to time that are having a very hard time financially about to get kicked out of their house or out of their apartment now if they're drunkards drug addicts we've had a few like that and we've helped them and helped them get out of jail and we give them a jail out uh, like in the monopoly game we get them to get out of jail card a couple times and by the third or fourth time then we say you got to repent you know we help them learn their lesson So we don't mean to do that, but the people that are still in the church, you can ask the ministry and they're trying. They're having a hard time. Try to help them if you can and think through how you can intelligently do that. Not just maybe once, but over a period of time to bring them. I remember my old Methodist grandmother was not in God's church, but she was a good Methodist. And I hardly ever got to drive the car when I was 16 and 17 years old in 1946 and 1947. Because it was right after the Second World War and the cars companies were just beginning to produce new models and they were scarce and my dad still had his old 1932. Yes, I said, 1932 Buick was kind of putt-putting along, and it didn't always run real well, and he was afraid that I would wreck his car, so he didn't let me use his car to take girls out all the time and do things like that, which was probably a good idea at the time (laughs) with my teenage hormones. But at any rate, I got to drive the car to help Grandma. She always wanted to go out to the cemetery. She was a cemetery woman, and she liked to put flowers on her husband's grave. And then the big thing, though, she liked to go help the miners. Joplin was a mining town, and we at one point were the largest zinc mining city in the world and the second or third largest for lead mines. And so we had the Eagle Pitcher Mining and Smelting Company there, one of the biggest employers. But she knew about it, and through the Methodist Church and their agency, she'd find out which members were out here at the edge of town living in these 10 can shanties and didn't have enough food. And grandmother would get one or two great big food baskets and she couldn't even carry them all. And so her, my dad would be tired. He often had to work 10 hours a day. He'd work from 8 to 6 and then three nights a week he'd go back and work again from 7.30 to 9 on the telephone in the veterinarian's office taking calls from the people with dogs and cats and in town and wanted help and so on but anyway so he couldn't always do that but he would let me have the car once in a while to take grandma out to visit the sick and to visit the people that were were starving or didn't have enough food and i always remember that of course, she'd, she was a Methodist, but she'd bring them food and, and sing a little song or or she'd sing the doxology of all things. And But she would uh, maybe have a prayer, but she'd give them food and they knew she was loving. And she said, well, God loves you and we want to help you. And, and sometimes they would have tears in their eyes. They, their kids were really glad we were there because she would carry a small basket and then I would carry maybe two big baskets in because I was a teenager. Boy, And she was up in her 60s by then. So I would help her get the food in the house and experience her little ministry of helping the poor people. And that was wonderful. How many of us do that? We have people in the church here that have that kind of problem, brethren. Think about it. They're embarrassed. They may not always want to come and put up a big sign in church, I need food, you know, but some of them have been here that I've heard about, and I hope that you will check with Mr. League and the other elders and, and try to help those people and help them if you can on an ongoing basis till they can get on their feet. They may love you, try to help you later, and be your friend for the rest of your natural life and possibly on to all eternity because of that. I can never forget how Mrs. Hammer helped me. She was older than my physical mother, but a wonderful kind of a country woman who was just, a, she had eight or nine kids, and, and she said, I know you boys. <laughs> she knew boys. They didn't wash their clothes very good, and she, she took care of us. She washed our clothes. She gave us a great big meal, and then she'd insist in sending some more food with us and all kinds of things two summers in a row. And then Mrs. Hammer there at Big Sandy area would do that to brethren all around that area as that church grew. Because once we started having the Feast of Tabernacles at Big Sandy, even though it was just once a year, it got to be one of the biggest churches in the world. And then when the college started, it did get to be the biggest church in the world for a while. We had 1,550 people attending the Big Sandy congregation when I was there as deputy chancellor. Because the college was there, and the college employees and families. But other people just kept moving around like they did to Pasadena as well. And Mrs. Hammer was out helping people, giving them food and taking care of them. She was a giver. And I'm sure many of those people will remember her clear on end to eternity because of that. So try to build that kind of an attitude of helping and giving and serving. Distributing to the needs of the saints. given to hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Verse 16, be of the same mind toward one another. Don't say, well, I'm a big shot and I wear a nice fancy suit or dress. I can't bother myself with these poor people. Well, if that's your attitude, God may bring you down and you will become a poor person. And then God will help you learn a lesson or some other way. You'll get sick. But God wants you to have the attitude to love everybody, no matter what their state is. Don't think on high things. Uh, Be with humble people and do not be wise in your own opinion. I remember in Pasadena, my wife Margie told me that there were a number of the big shot women, wives of evangelists or business managers or big shots. And I can't remember the names of the dresses, but... They had these fancy names that they, oh, are you wearing your such and such dress today? And they stand up there like that wearing their five or six hundred dollar dresses. Well, Margie was not like that. And my present wife is not like that. They never tried to do that at all. But some of the women got into that attitude. It's not wrong to have a nice suit or a nice dress, but the attitude was we'll stand in front and pose and we're the big shots. We sit up here and we try to act important. Try to associate with everybody in that way and I hope that you all will I remember that Dr. Robert Kuhn is now very successful and and very wealthy but he was my friend and I helped him back in college when he was kicked out by his parents who were wealthy multi-millionaire Jewish businessmen he was getting his doctorate degree in brain research from UCLA the UCLA brain Institute was the most famous place on earth at that time for that kind of study, the highest level. He'd done all of his regular coursework, got almost straight A's, a brilliant young man. But he suddenly made two great mistakes in his parents' eyes. He married a non-Jew, an Armenian girl, named Doris Serviarian, and he then joined this California cult. You can't imagine what that was, you know, Worldwide Church of God and Ambassador College. And he came to, and he was sitting in my freshman Bible class when he was still finishing his dissertation for his doctorate in brain research over at UCLA. But my wife, Margie, a lot of you knew Mr. Carl McNair and the warmth and the love and the dedication he had. He grew up on a farm. Well, Margie, of course, was his older sister. She grew up on the same farm. And she didn't have any vanity. In that way, she just accepted Doris. And Doris wasn't converted. But in the in the occasions that were social occasions, some of the other wives would stand over here, or up here, and poor Doris over here is not in the church, and they didn't fellowship with her. But Margie'd go up and put her arm around her because by that time uh, Robert was our faculty aide and beginning to help put together the entire Tomorrow's World magazine. Yes, I said Tomorrow's World. Why do we have a Tomorrow's World magazine? Because I grabbed the same title that John Hill and I came up with back in the late 1960s, and we had it back then for about two years. So we are now using that same title that Worldwide didn't incorporate and using it for our magazine. But he helped all kinds of things because they had tremendous mind and mental energy, and they were helping a lot in the work. So she'd put around, How are you? and just took her in and literally hugged her. And they've remembered that to this day. And if you come and tide my home sometime, you'll see, as many of you have done, in the right on wall, just as you walk in, there's a great big scene of a mountain painting that's worth probably three or four thousand dollars. I didn't pay three or four thousand dollars for that. I paid nothing. Robert Kuhn gave it to me because doris was remodeling the game room or the family room and he realized or she realized that wasn't part of the middle eastern decor she wanted and they were going to sell it or give it away so robert sent it down by jim and i remember jim brought it down remember to our home in in san diego and 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 i said are you giving me a present it was thanksgiving time i didn't think it was time for a present he said no and i said what is this He kind of led me along and he said, well, you'll see. So I opened it. Then we realized it was that mountain scene, mountain painting that Dr. Kuhn had given me because mainly I had been good to him and helped him by giving him a job and by that he really deserved, by the way. And also my wife, Margie, especially Doris loved her clear up till her death very much because she had accepted her. We'd have them over to dinner. We'd take them out. We loved them. And she was accepted by someone else who didn't act superior to her all the time. And so that's something God wants us to do. So God tells us that right here. Do not set your mind on high things, thinking you're a big shot, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. So anyway, we need to do that. And God will repay us you know others will help us or if they don't pay us back God will but at any rate God takes care of us and he wants us to have that attitude of loving everybody and especially everybody in the church or in the work or whatever the best way we can and we certainly should do that at the early church in Pasadena uh... when back in the early nineteen fifties we were smaller there was a great deal of that because we were smaller and people had moved out by the hundreds from Arkansas and Texas and Louisiana and Missouri and elsewhere. And they were all there, and they learned to love each other and take care of each other. And I remember that normally on Saturday night, why, a single young men, we could go over to the Piles house, because we're not any relation to Wayne Pyle, although he and his wife have been very wonderful, too, in many ways. But it was Norvell Pyle and his wife, and they had three sons and two daughters and the two daughters both married ministers. Some of you may remember Mr. Tony Hammer. He married Natalie Pyle and Mr. Ronald Kelly. And he married Norvalle Pyle. But the parents would have this barbecue. And they had two pretty daughters. <clears throat> that helped. <laughs> and uh, plus the sons, a big family. We'd come over there. And generally the people would bring some food with them. But there's a great, just an open house. They just had that attitude. The mother didn't say, well, my house is not perfect, I'm afraid. There's a speck of dust somewhere. There were probably a lot of specks of dust in that house. They weren't wealthy. They'd just have everybody over almost every Saturday night. People would show up there, and they'd have a barbecue, and different ones would bring some, you know, ground beef or steaks, and they'd cook it together, and some women would bring some you know, potato salad or fixins and everybody had fun. We'd eat together and didn't have to go out to a restaurant because of that atmosphere of love and Christian fellowship at their home and other homes. They were the most outstanding one because they had a bunch of young people as their kids and it made it more of a natural thing. But they did it. Then after graduation, I went up to pastor in my first pastorate up in Portland, Oregon. I think I've told you this story before. But Mrs. Chloe Shippert was up there who was a deacon in the church, deaconess. And she helped everybody just like Mrs. Hammer. Someone was sick, they'd get a call from Close Shepherd. She was not officially told to do that. She just did it. She called around, well, what's wrong? Can I help you? And she'd come out and help them and help the woman clean the house for a day or two and bring them food. And when I was up there as a young 22-year-old, she was probably 50 years old. She was older than my mother. So she would write me an encouraging letter a love letter so to speak (laughs) every week and I was practicing on the church my preaching you know I'd never preached very much before and I I understood that I was not a great preacher but she wrote me an encouraging letter every single week your sermon was so helpful and we really enjoyed it and I wasn't stupid I'm I'm dumb but not stupid as they say I realized this older woman is trying to encourage me every week I'd get the letter and Mrs. uh, Close Shepard was encouraging me And then one time she asked me, she said, well, I know kind of like Mrs. Hammer did. I know you're a bachelor. You probably have a hard time cleaning all your apartment, don't you? Because young men don't usually know how to do all that. I said, no, everything's fine. Well, everything was fine. I wasn't dead yet, but everything was piled up and I didn't clean everything like a woman would have done. And she asked a second time and I gave her the same story. But she realized, I think, what was happening. So pretty soon that week, she showed up at my apartment. kind of shocked me. She had another woman with her, (laughs) and they had brooms and mops. And Oh, it's all right. No, it's not all right. She was very friendly. She was just like, Mom, I'll just come here to help you. It's okay. So they came in, and they cleaned that whole apartment. And I noticed they were getting dust here and there. I didn't even know it was there, but it was all over the place. So they really cleaned up for me. And then she would give me these letters every week. And when a woman got sick, she would get a call from Mrs. Shippard, or a young woman would find that Mrs. Shippard would come and help her take care of the baby or help arrange for someone else. A giver, giving and giving and giving as part of a family. So when new people came in that church, they became part of a family. The whole church was only about 20 or 25 people, but they were part of a family because of Mrs. Shippard and other people like that. Basil Wolverton wrote the old Bible story for children. Some of you remember those strange pictures he wrote, very graphic. But he and his wife were very warm and loving, too. And Basil, uh, and honor was her name, like a code of honor, if that was her, her name. Baseball and Honor will invite me over for steak nearly every Saturday night. They knew I was a bachelor, probably all alone. I was. I didn't have any girlfriends or boyfriends or anything. There weren't any girls or any, or young women, I should say, or any young men in that whole church. No one near my age. And I had to be all alone in my apartment there for about seven months. But... Every Saturday night, I could go over to this uh, Basil Wolverton's house and have steak. And they were real friendly, trying to encourage me. And you'd come to the door, and Basil Wolverton would come right up to the door and say, We've got some good stuff tonight. And he'd hold up this bottle of wine. And on the bottle of wine, it said, Old Tennis Shoe. That was the label, Old Tennis Shoe. It was a funny label, you know what I mean? Not the real. So he had all, he had a joke for everything. You come in, and then you would come in. He'd tell you the first time you came. He said, "Well, I want you to meet my first wife." You thought for a minute, yes, it's his first wife, his last wife, his only wife. So he'd always introduce her as his first wife. And then you'd try to sit down at the table. And then he'd say, well, if you don't like anything, just throw it on the floor. And he'd smile. And his wife would kind of smile and look at her. She knew all his jokes, of course. But he was a he was a ball of humor. But they were very warm and loving and encouraging. We had people like that in those days through the church that were very encouraging to me. And I'm sure to most of the others. So we all need to develop that attitude of family and helping each other and encouraging each other and showing love to each other in so many, many different ways. Brethren, let's turn to First Corinthians chapter twelve. First Corinthians chapter twelve and beginning here in verse thirteen. Here it says For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. For in fact the body is not one member, but many. For if the foot should say, because I'm not the hand, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? You know, and he goes down the line. No, we're all part of the body. We need one another. I'm part of the body. I'm one of the mouths in the body. But we have the two Joshes here, the two older Joshes, Josh Beatty and Josh Penman, and they are brilliant young men and computers. And they know approximately 1,000 times more about computers than I do. And I'm not exaggerating, by the way. I know very little. And so they have strengths I don't have. And each one of us complements the other all through the body. And so God wants this. He says in verse 24... But God composed the body, having given greater honor to the port which lacked. We can give greater attention to the new members who are weaker, perhaps, or confused, to sick people, to weak people, to old people, to young people that need help, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care. We care for one another. We're family. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. If one member suffer, all the members suffer with it. And if one member is honored, don't be jealous. What if your brother gets something? Well, you would be honored. What if my son gets something? I'm usually very grateful for that. I'm grateful that, you know, Jim can have certain things. And I'm allowing him to go on this uh, trip to with the because he's well, he's been asked to go to help as a counselor or whatever. This uh, experience out in the uh uh, out in this big park out here uh, it, it's just a, a magnificent thing and I've always wanted to go there myself and never had the chance so I thought well I'll let Jim do what I can't do so I'm glad whatever he gets And I'm glad whatever my other son gets, my son, Michael's very successful and has a much bigger, nicer house than I have. Am I jealous of Michael? No, I've never been jealous for one half of one second. You know, you're usually happy if your children do things you can't do or do things better. Think that about your brothers in Christ that are not your physical relatives. Be glad for them. So-and-so makes more money. Well, that's fine. So-and-so gets a bigger car. Well, that's wonderful. If it goes to their head, well, we pray for them. But, you know, be grateful they can have something good. So-and-so gets a blessing that you don't give. their family. Be glad for them, whatever it is. This is the attitude. Now, you are the body in Christ and members individually. So all of us are part of the body. All of us are part of the family. And God is building us into a spiritual family uh, to be together for all eternity. Now, brethren, turn back, if you would, at this point to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, he's been talking about the magnificent occasion when Moses and the children of Israel stood at the base of Mount Sinai and the whole mountain shook, and God shook that mountain and shook that whole place and showed mighty power as he gave the Ten Commandments. And they could not endure what was commanded, it says in verse 20. If so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be thrust through with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. Even Moses, who'd been with God, this was a tremendous occasion. God was showing who God is with awesome power all around them. And so it helped them understand. But God says here through Paul... Verse 22, you have come to Mount Zion, not to Mount Sinai, the physical mountain, but to the spiritual mountain and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable company of angels and to the general assembly and church of the firstborn. We're born and going to be born into the very family of God to be full brothers and sisters with Christ and with one another. You're called into that family to God judge of all and of the spirits of just men made perfect we're not perfect now but we're being made perfect to be joined to the firstborn son of God who is the firstborn of many brethren and as Christ dwells in us we can have an even deeper deeper understanding and even deeper loyalty and even more profound relationship with one another because we are going to be brothers and sisters in the family of God forever so think on that build on that love one another build these relationships help each other serve each other give to one another and let us build a deep family relationship in the church of God